So if you will, open up your Bibles to Matthew 16. We're going to pick up again. We're on, uh, I believe, week five uh, or six, somewhere around there, uh, of called My Church. And so every week has been so different, you know, picking up different topics because you could teach on this for years and not exhaust this. We mentioned this last week, you know, what's interesting in the Old Testament, which is called the Old Covenant, the church is never mentioned. Church did not exist. You with me? Matter of fact, Paul writing called it the mystery of the church. The church was a secret in the Old Testament. It was not revealed. Even when the disciples were here on the earth, they said, Jesus, are you going to set up your kingdom now? He said, not yet. He said, I'm going to leave and then I'm going to come back. But during that age from the time he ascended to heaven till the time he returns is what is called the church age. It's so different than any other time because God always lived in a building way back when he brought the children of Israel out and called them his own. Now he is chosen during the church age, which was a mystery. But how many of you know, like if you go to a movie and you know it's a mystery movie, why is it a mystery movie? Because you know everything? No, because that wouldn't be a mystery. Because you're like, you know, isn't it true after you've watched like a scary part of a movie where the guy jumps out and goes, hey, and you're like, everybody jumps, but you've seen it. And then he goes to do it again. Everybody else jumps. But you just are like, I knew that was coming. And uh, why? Because it's not a mystery to you anymore. And so there are different things that are mentioned uh, numerous times in the New Testament as mysteries. One of them is called the mystery of iniquity or sin that is working. And through it, the Antichrist will find his place. There are different things that are called the mystery or mysteries, but they're un raveled in the New Testament, one of them was the church, was called a mystery. I mean, we didn't know about it. The disciples thought, hey, Jesus, you've risen from the dead. Now this is it. And he said, no, I'm leaving and you guys are going to be here. And now the church is here. We take the place of Christ in the earth. You with me? So if you will, Matthew 16 we're going to pick back up where we left off last week, Matthew 16, 18. These have been our verses that we've kind of read every week. It says this in the 18th verse, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. So he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And it's interesting, we've looked week after week of all the investments that God has made in humanity, and so the building of the church actually comes through people working with God. And we learn this, that the church is actually not a building, but it's the people that meet in the building, and it's not just people meeting in a building. Because then anybody could be the church and just, you know, we could come to the, together and put a sign on the front that says church and it actually not be a church. You with me? Because why? We looked at these verses in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. We won't turn there again. Ephesians 1, 23 and Colossians 1, 18, that the body or the church is actually people that have given their lives to the Lord. And so when the Lord is your Lord and he comes into you, then guess what? You become part of the church. You don't become part of the church by attending regularly. But people who are part of the church should uh, be there and attend regularly. So he said, I will build my church. So when he builds his church, then that means he's going to build his people. That's important. He's going to build his people. And what we need to realize is the people that he builds are who? Lost people? Yeah. People who are lost that get saved become new. They become part of the church. And he starts at that point 
wanting to build them up. He wants his church to be strong. And we talked about that before he returns. He wants that. So if you will, turn to Acts, the first chapter, and we're going to get started and head a different way today. Acts, the first chapter. This is really when the church started. This is when it started. The church did not exist when Jesus was on the earth as we know it. There were people that followed him, but nobody could be saved. Nobody could know God in the way that we do. You with me? Though the disciples after he left came to know him in a tremendous way. So Acts the first chapter. Now we've been talking about this. He said, I will build my church. And as we have gone through We've looked at verses that say this about build or edify, which means to build up. You'll see that kind of statement again and again in the New Testament, where he said, I'll edify. But that's not a word we use today. You with me? But it literally means to build up like stone upon stone. And so he wants to build his church. He wants to build you up and build us up corporately. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to be strong in Him. He doesn't want you to be weak. He wants you to be an overcomer. It's interesting to me how many times people talk about all the tragedies they co that come in their life as though they're God-ordained. You with me? It, it is not God's ordination to order you to have tragedy. In your life. It is not his design. As a matter of fact, you know, I think it was Bush when he got inaugurated and did his inaugural speech, he quoted a verse from Acts or at Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors in everything we face. That's what God wants. But that's not the only verse that talks like that. God wants us to be overcomers. But I mean, you think about it. He gave us armor to wear in the Bible, it says. He gave us weapons in the Bible, you know, to use so we could overcome. It's not that you won't face something. He just wants you to win when you face it. You with me? He, the Bible calls us more than conquerors. The Bible calls us people who are to triumph always. So it's not an issue of facing something, it's a matter of overcoming when you face it. You with me? So Acts, the first chapter, this is when the church first got started. And this is the beginning of what we know of as what we are doing here today, meeting together and church. Jesus has already died. He's already risen again. These guys are been trained for three and a half years they're fired up now to do what they're called to do. You know, in John 16, they were full of sorrow because Jesus was about to die, and he said, I'm going to die, and, the, and I'm going to leave. And they're thinking, man, we've committed to follow you, and you're going to bail on us. And Jesus even said, your hearts are full, full of sorrow, but when I appear to you again, they won't be. And so these guys saw him, and they were already bold, but they're about to become emboldened like nobody could have probably ever imagined. I mean, they stood up against it didn't matter what. But right when Jesus has finished training them, I mean, he's trained them for three and a half years. I mean, he sought God. He didn't just pick people. He handpicked them by God's design, trained them, and then... He dies, and he goes to heaven, or is about to go to heaven, so they're ready to take their place, and Jesus makes this statement. He said to them, he said, but wait. Wait. He said, you know, I've trained you. He gave the commission to what, what to do, and then he said, wait. You know, I mean, you think about it. Lives are at stake, and the Lord says, wait. 
what if you got a college degree and you get, you know, this degree and you're like, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. I can start. You've done your internship. You've done everything. And then you get instructions now that you can be effective in what you do or you think you can. You should be if you're a brain surgeon, I guess. Be effective. You can't do any whoopses when you're doing that. You know, oh, wow, sorry about that. You, you don't get do-overs. But you're supposed to be ready, right? And, and what if you get done and, and then you hear this, wait, wait. You, you think, what else? I mean, I'm ready to go. I remember when I got out of school, I was ready to go. And here he tells them to wait. He tells them to wait. But notice this, though, in Acts 1.8. Why did he tell them to wait? Why did he tell them to tarry? He, he told them to wait for him for a certain thing. And here is why he wanted them to wait a period of time. It was actually just a, you know, a little over a month, but he told them, wait. And so they prayed together. They sought God together. They replaced Judas, who bailed and turned on him, you know, and uh, appointed someone else to this position. They did some of that, and they sought God, and they prayed. But what did they do? You know, because notice this. We'll start actually in verse... Um, Four, And being assembled, Acts 1, 4, assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Think about all the commandments there are in the Bible, and this is not a suggestion. They're not the ten suggestions. They're the ten commandments, and this was a command. And it's interesting as you see Jesus, as he progresses toward the end of his ministry, he would say things like, I didn't tell you this before because I was going to be with you, but I'm going to be leaving, so now I'm telling you it now. Some of the greatest things, uh, direction for the disciples came right at the very end of his departure or his death. So now he's died and rose again, and he gives one more commandment, or more than that. But right here, this commandment is, he said, don't leave from Jerusalem. Now remember that statement, don't leave from Jerusalem. Remember that. That's important. Don't depart from Jerusalem. What did he say in Mark 16? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Everybody. You go everywhere and you tell them. And he said right here, don't leave Jerusalem, you wait. It's pretty wild. And this was a, he commanded them. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. He said, but wait. But what were they waiting for? What was the signal for going? Why did they have to wait? And what was the signal for going? He said, wait for the promise of the Father. And notice this. <clears throat> the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Jesus talked about this promise that we're about to read about. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we touched on this last week just briefly, and we're not going to really touch on it again. There is more than one baptism mentioned in the Bible. And there are three primary ones that should permeate the church age. You with me? And this baptism is different than the one we talked about last week. The Bible said when a person receives Christ, they're actually baptized. Somebody said, I knew that. No, don't let your head get away from you. Not baptized in water. But the Bible said, and here's how you can interpret the Bible... 
look who he's talking to and the people. He, things are not just said by accident. Well, if you read the New Testament and want to know what the Bible said that, you know, the doctrine of baptisms is a phrase, there's more than one, ask, into what is somebody being baptized and who is doing the baptizing? We saw last week when anybody bows their head or keeps their eyes open and says, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord. That's calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. What you don't see is a baptism takes place right then. Baptism, baptism, yeah. Remember we said baptism is a, was a very common term in the old times. It's a term we don't use much today, and there are two archaic terms that are used. I'll only mention one this week. It literally means to take a cloth and dip it in to dye. To take a cloth, so if you have a white or white and blue, and you put this in red or purple, that fabric takes on all the qualities, colors, and everything of what it's dipped into. So we looked at a verse that says, by one spirit, not by a man, not by Jesus, by one spirit we've been baptized into the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? The church. You were put into the body of Christ. You became the church. How? by what the Spirit did when you got saved. And we're not going to go back into detail. We went into much detail last week that though it looks so plain when somebody comes, like, you know, we had somebody last week come and pray and say, Jesus, be my Lord. From the outside, it looks like just somebody said, Lord, be my Savior. What happens is, is they're spiritually removed out of the kingdom of darkness by the Spirit and baptized or put into the body of Christ. Who does that baptism? The Holy Spirit. He moves people out of darkness and into light. Out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. He puts them in the church. That's why you don't go to membership to become a member of the kingdom of God. You don't get baptized in water to become. Because notice the Spirit does that baptism... Baptism in water is when man puts you into water. That's when the Spirit puts you into the kingdom. Water baptism is just telling the world, I'm in this kingdom, and it's your public declaration that I've been made new, and I'm identifying that when Christ died and rose, I accepted it, and now I'm risen in new life in Him. But notice this phrase here in verse 5. John truly baptized, John, John baptized with water, man into water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this is a third thing baptized or put into or filled with, because remember we said the other term of baptism that is used literally means a big container, like a big huge container of something like water, and you take a small cup and you scoop out from what's in there. That's the other archaic term for baptism. And so he said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So he said, wait for this. What is this? Notice verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own authority, but... So in other words, there's a lot of stuff that tells us time frames, but don't, nobody's going to be able to tell you when the Lord's actually going to come back. So our main goal in life will always be occupy till he comes. Live your life like you're going to, or prepare like you're going to be here forever, 
but live like he could come back at any time. Because some people get that goofed up, and then they go, he's coming back next month. Let's get our credit cards, and let's have a party. And then he doesn't come back next month, and you're like, man, I sure hope he comes back by the following month, because the bills are coming. You out there? And that's not what chapter 11 is for. It's not. And, but people get, don't realize Jesus said, occupy till I come. And so we live a life knowing that there are pure, plain symbols and things that tell us we're getting closer, but close could be 50 years. I mean, in all reality, when you're young, 50 years does not seem long. The older you get, 50 years seems like nothing. 50 years is like, wow, that's real close. Kids are like, oh, are you kidding? I've been in school now six years. It's forever. No, it's not that long. And there's a lot of work to be done in the interim. You know what I mean? I mean, it's getting squeezed, the time frame by which work can be done. So verse 8 says this. He said, wait, tarry for this promise. Here is the promise. They started saying, let's learn about all this end time. Are you going to do this now? He said, no, no, listen. He said, it's not to know the exact time or the season. There are things we can know. But he said, but you shall receive, you shall receive, you shall receive power, power, you shall receive power. What was he, why did he tell them, don't leave Jerusalem, wait, tarry, stay put, they had been trained. They had been equipped. But he said, wait, because you will receive power. Uh, there's a time where you can receive power. Power. What kind of power? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When will you get power? When you get this promise of the Father. This that he's talking about. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's interesting, if you look on a map, they were in Jerusalem. Judea is right there, then you have to go further for Samaria, and then you have to go further to the uttermost parts of the earth. He said, wait and do not leave this place, even though you're commissioned to go to everybody, until you get this promise. He called the promise power from heaven. He called it power from the Spirit. And these guys were definitely equipped. Now, here's what you have to understand. Were they not already doing great things for the Lord? He had already given 12 authority through the use of his name to cast out devils and to heal the sick in Luke 10. Then he commissioned 70, and they went out and did the same things. And then other people picked up on the name and started Jesus and started doing the same thing. And they're out doing it. And then the disciples found out and said, hey, they're not just exactly walking with us. You know, they're not. A... So we told them, stop it. And Jesus said, stop it. Don't tell them to stop it. So they had good things happening, but he still said, wait. So they needed something different than that what they had. And what they had was doing something. You with me? He said, you need power. Would you know if you had power? Could you recognize power? They would recognize this. And he said this power is the power of the Spirit. It's being filled with the Spirit. Turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, this occurrence happens, but we're not going to look at what happened when, when they received this power. But... 
they were waiting for the promise of the Father. I'm going to jump through verses because I want to get somewhere further down the road, so to speak, before we leave today. Acts uh, 2, they have this experience. They get filled with this power. The church starts with a bang, literally. And they're off and running. Peter is preaching. You just see the mercy of God in all this. Peter had denied the Lord three times. One of the times he cussed. That's not an endorsement for cussing. But the Lord, you know, oh, wow, praise the Lord, you know, I, he cussed. And you just preach right after you cuss. No, the Lord asked commitment of Peter and asked him to feed his sheep after he had denied him, after he had turned his back. But, I mean, it's a matter of days, and he's up preaching, and God uses him with power. Never underestimate God's mercy for people. And don't be alarmed when you see God working through somebody that you find to be imperfect. Like we said last week, that's not an endorsement for Samson's life. God worked through him in power. But he was supposed to straighten up and he didn't and it ultimately cost him and it took him, made him have a huge delay in his life because he didn't obey. But once he got back with it, all of a sudden at the end of his life, he had a handicap because of his disobedience, but he was still able to do more in that last time than he had done in his whole life. But we can avoid that by just being obedient to God and obeying him. <clears throat> you out there? God's mercy is great, and we all need it. <clears throat> but don't underestimate your obedience. What else could have happened with Samson's life in between his persistent disobedience and his failure to obey and the losing of that power and then the restoring of it right at the end? What could have happened? What else could have been written? I'm grateful that everything was written. I'm grateful that we see people who weren't perfect that were able to be restored and to walk in great things because it gives us hope. You out there? That's why the Bible said the Old Testament was written f so we could have hope. What if everybody was perfect in the Bible? No matter how perfect you are, you're not as perfect as me. No, that's not what I meant to say. You're not perfect, period. And I'm not perfect. And that's not an excuse. But we need to recognize there is something about when we know what to do, do it. Right? Didn't Jesus, uh, you know, when he, his first miracle, I think people are fascinated with, you know, they're, you know it's, it's interesting. Some people are bothered by miracles, you know, God doing stuff in the earth and working through people. But the first time they ever want to justify drinking, they were like, Jesus turned water into wine, you know. <laughs> All of a sudden, they believe in miracles. No, they believe in a miracle, not miracles. Oh, well, you know, I don't believe in miracles. Well, you know, Jesus turned water into wine. No. <laughs> but what she said was profound. Whatever he says, do it. <clears throat> Whatever he says, do it. When God deals with you, just do it. Whatever his word says, just do it in its right context, you know. I mean, you can say a lot there, you know, in its context, because that's why people who are in authority should have some development in this area, because you can get real stupid real fast. You could. And then you, and Facebook is a medium for stupidity in action. I mean, it's just like, it, it just showers a blessing of stupidity. I mean, it just rains on you. It can if you're not careful. And people just say stuff, and they, but they, they, they take scripture, but they don't read it in its whole, so they come up with all kinds of conclusions. Well, yeah, you know, in the Old Testament, it said, don't do this. And it said, kill somebody if they do this. Understand the covenant. Understand there was no mercy. Understand there was no grace. Understand the context and that we don't live in, under that covenant anymore. You with me? 
we don't put aside those scriptures, they have their place. But, you know, somebody does wrong, we don't, you know, take them to the playground in the back and stone them to death or give them 40 lashings, you know, for we live in a different covenant. There are different rules that govern the New Testament than the Old. You with me? The law of love actually governs, is supposed to govern the church age. It governs the new covenant. The Ten Commandments govern the Old Testament covenant. You with me? I could make a statement, and I have before, but I don't know if I have time. But we're not commanded in the New Testament to follow the Ten Commandments. Period. You with me? Because they are what govern the Old Testament. If you could live according to those rules, you could walk in God's best. That's why Jesus said in John 13... A new commandment I give you. This new commandment was to be the overarching rule of the new covenant. And it was to love one another. But when you tell people we're not commanded to follow the Old Testament commandments, they freak out and go, are you telling me we can commit adultery? I didn't say that. I said exactly what the Bible said. What does the Bible say? Love is the fulfilling of the law. If you walk in love, you'll never break any of the commandments. If you love your neighbor, the Bible said you'll never lie to him. If you'll pursue walking in his love, you won't cheat. That's one of the rules. You won't steal from someone else if you walk in love because that was one of the Old Testament rules. If one of them was to keep God first, well, if you walk in love, you're going to love him first. You're not going to commit fornication, because, which is sex outside of marriage, because it's not for personal gain, and it would hurt the other person. Said, so, no, they love that. No, it's a violation. It's sin. It's actually a step outside of love. That's why Romans 13 said, if you will follow love, you won't violate any of the commandments that were given to curb sin. We're just not called to focus in on them. We're called to focus on this, and if we live it, we won't violate any of them. We'll fulfill them. You with me? Because this covenant is superior to that one. You with me? So this promise, remember? You thought I forgot about this. Acts 2. He's preaching this message, and he preaches here, verse 32, Peter, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. In other words, they saw it, Acts 2.32. Verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, he's in heaven now alive. Like we said last week, he's just not visible to the eye. But he is no different. Here's the thing, when he returns, he just becomes visible to the eye. He doesn't become something, he just becomes apparent to the senses. But he's real. And he's spiritually real, just not always to the senses. That's where humanity has failed, is they've tried to touch God and feel God, but you can experience him, and you can know him for real, if I'm allowed to say that. You can know him for real. And in verse 33, he said, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the gift of the Holy Spirit has now been poured out. And he's preaching this and he's explaining because they're like, What is this that's going on? Well, they said you'll receive, Jesus said you'll receive power. Wait till you get this power. It's this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's skip down a couple of verses, get back into Peter's preaching, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent, turn from your ways, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or literally removing of sins. And you shall receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice the next verse. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Who is this that we're talking about for? To your children? He said, listen, give your life to the Lord, then you can receive the Holy Spirit. He said, for this promise is to you, to your children, as many be afar off. That should end a couple of questions. Well, you know, it all passed away with the last apostles. First of all, it wasn't just the apostles doing the work back then. It didn't all pass away. Having power is needful for today. Like we've said before, Jesus said before he comes, he said the earth will become violent and all different thing, kinds of things would begin to occur. And he said it would become so bad it would be like it never was before or ever will be again. So in other words, he said right before he comes, it will get worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll get worse than the time before the ark. It'll get worse than the time of the Tower of Babel where people will try to approach God on their own terms and be their own ruler and take things over. And he said it will get to where it all comes to a head and it will be worse than ever. Just question. You think it would be important to have power during that time? Or just when the apostles came? Why, if Jesus, God is the ultimate planner. Evolution is ignorance publicized. It is. And I don't care what you think. You know, one of the privileges of being in the ministry all these years is all the people you get to meet. And when I was in Southern California, I got to eat with these guys from Caltech. They came to our church. They're literal geniuses. Some of them taught there. They're, they're smart, makes smart people look not smart. They, they said they get hired at J, uh, from like JB, uh, JPL, you know, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, NASA. They're basically what MIT is over here or in Pasadena in California. Well, I sit and eat with them and they said, you know, none of the high scientists, the really, really high ones, believe in evolution. They said it's so stupid. And having lunch with them, I don't feel inferior to anybody because I don't have a complex. But talking about knowledge, then they just start rattling off why evolution is stupid. And they start talking about the human body and how it works and how things are passed on in the genes from the next one. You don't pass on memories to the next. You'd have to alter genes, and they say it takes millions of years. And they say, well, what, what takes part first? The cornea? The retina? How do you know there's a sense realm that you have to see something? What part of the eye has to be developed? And each part works intricately, to, you know, all together in a progression, and how it works. How do you know to do this and to pass it on that this part is going to work with this part that this part is going to work with this, then it's got to connect to the brain, to the nervous system, and all this stuff. And how do you know your stomach acid, you know, it can eat, won't eat your stomach, but will eat other meat that you put in there? How do you evolve to absorb meat and food into your system to bring nutrients? He said, you, you die before that ever happened. And I'm giving a light version, like I said. I flunked third grade, okay? And so these guys, and that's not a promotion for that either. But the fact of the matter is these guys are way smart. And I'd sit there and listen to them go on and on and on and say creation, some kind of creation had to take place. And the Bible teaches that. And when the Lord comes back, he'll straighten it out too. The problem is I think we've, as a people group, have thought we've come to some kind of pinnacle of knowledge 
And we really are very ignorant as a people. I mean, we really are. Even in our technology, we're very ignorant. You with me? Very ignorant. But the Bible said through knowledge, if you read 1 Corinthians 2, through their knowledge, they did not know God. God. Because if that's how people are going to approach him, God set it up a different way, and he said it would be through the foolishness of preaching that men would be saved, not through knowledge. You with me? So anyway, how we got off on that, it, I find it foolish, especially after, I mean, I met the guy who runs the Griffith Park Observatory, you know, the one that's in all the movies, you know, and does all the telescopes. He told me, he ran, runs them, he lived by me in California, he said, he didn't know I was a Christian, I didn't tell him either at first. Because he had it in for Christians. Because he didn't believe some of the things. But he said, now I'll never admit this to him because they'll come in and start talking about this. He said, I totally believe in creation. He said, you're crazy to think that this evolved. He said, now I won't admit to them. I don't believe exactly like they believe. But this did not explode and come into being. Even scientists believe, believe that nothing, you know, things can't come from nothing. And they, the only way it came was because God. <clears throat> because they'll keep saying, well, this happened, and then you keep going back. Even the big brains. Well, yeah, well, then you, 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 well where was the origin? That's, they have a problem. And they're always going to have a problem. You with me? But we'll, we'll, we need power. <laughs> you with me? Then verse 30, 38, it said, Then Peter said to them, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And, you, and he said, And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, For the promises to you, to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. God wants his people to have power. Who? All of them. And do you receive this power when you get saved? That's a good question. Do you get it all when you get saved? Do you get it all when you get saved? Turn to Acts 8, and we're going to run through this real quick. The disciples or different followers had went out and, and, and uh, were preaching the gospel and people were giving their lives to the Lord. Verse 5 of the 8th chapter. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things that were spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. If you'll read through, this city or these people had come to a point where they have now accepted Christ. They've accepted what is said. <clears throat> and it said, verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, in other words, they believed in his name, they called on his name, both men and women, then they were baptized. How many of you would believe that these people had accepted the gospel and they were what we would call saved? You know, you can go back and read in case you think, well, he's trying to trick us. No, they were. So they had the Lord. But it's interesting when the head of the church in Jerusalem had found out, look what they did in verse um, we'll start in verse 14. So they've already have the Lord. The disciples, when they went to go out, the Lord said, you need this power. So maybe they had an emphasis in their life of wanting everybody to have this power too because it was so important by what the Lord had commanded and what they had personally experienced. Notice verse 14. 
Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Turn to Acts 19. Is this automatic when you get saved, or is this something after salvation? These apostles might have known something. Maybe the Bible knows something. Maybe there is a power to be had. <clears throat> I'll let you come to your own conclusion. Now, I'm not trying to shove anything down your throat, but if you will read. <laughs> Acts 19, verse 1. Now it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, not some pagans. Disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why in the world would you ask such a foolish question if you always get the Holy Spirit when you get saved? Here's the thing. Do you get the Holy Spirit? Yes. But do you get filled with the Spirit? No. And that is subsequent and is mentioned again and again. <clears throat> Notice this. Did you? Why would you ask a believer who has given their life to the Lord, who is called a disciple, one who has already committed and is a follower, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Why would you ask a question like that if it wasn't automatic? Because he would have said, you have what you're going to have. Notice verse 3, and he said to them, I'm sorry, verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so, as so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. <clears throat> verse 3, and he said to them into, then, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Uh, then Paul said, John indeed baptized a baptism of repentance, saying uh, to the people, that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> that baptism of John no longer exists and is not supposed to be, but it was still there. You can find it in other places. So they got baptized. They got saved, you know, they were already had given their lives to the Lord. Then they got baptized. Then what happened? Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. We skipped over those other parts in Acts 2 and Acts 8, Acts 10, and different places where they were filled and spoke in tongues. That was the power. Tongues are not the power. The Holy Spirit is. That is a result. But there's so much out there that people are confused and have misunderstandings. And why do we need this power? What's this power for? What, what's the use of this? We'll read two verses and we'll close. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, or two sets, right? We'll just do them. We'll read these right here and then we'll close. 1 Corinthians 14. I'm so glad I have a Bible that I can read for myself. And I don't have to let somebody else read it for me and tell me what it says. But I can look and see clearly by the laws that govern interpretation of Scripture in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every truth shall be established. Not, every, not two or three opinions, not two or three whatever. If there is power for the believer... What would this benefit be then of being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues? 
See, when I got saved, I gave my life to the Lord. I went right back to the church I had gone to because I didn't know anything else. I had rededicated my life, <clears throat> went there, and I remember being in the service and just thinking, this is, this is awesome. I was witnessing to everybody just about that didn't move faster, you know, than a fast-moving cockroach. I mean, I was on them. I was like, hey, do you know the Lord? And I'd go to church, and the first week I was like, this is awesome. And the next week, I was all, this is awesome. And the next week, I was all, huh? I love the Lord. But all of a sudden, what was in me turned into, I recognized there was a hunger in me for more. And I was sitting there hearing these guys preach. And my girlfriend at the time had dedicated her life to the Lord. And she said, let's go to our friend's church. Let's go to that church. Let's not. I'm no, no. We're staying here. But there was something working in me, and I'm empty. And so inside, I'm so hungry for more. I said, yeah, let's go. I knew they had something where I was. But when we went to this other place, they were crazy. There were people like when they'd be singing, they'd be crying. And this is in the 80s when they didn't, you had to buy waterproof makeup. <laughs> so they look like a crazy clown, you know, with these lines down their face, you know. And I'm like, whoa. And, you know, there, there's people doing stuff I'd never seen done before in church. Have their hands up. Some of them even would kneel down. And, and all this stuff's happening, and I'm like, Whoa. I mean, you know, talk about, you know, something for the senses, you know. It was like, whoa. You know, I felt like I was in Willy Wonka, you know, when they went through that tunnel, you know, in the Chocolate Milk River and everything's happening. And they're like, stop, stop. I mean, it was happening. And I remember leaving and <laughs> my girlfriend at the time's like, what'd you think? Wasn't that awesome? I was like, I don't even know if I said anything. I just was like, whoa. But I had a, a time to myself where I just went, you know what? That was different to me. But if I could compare that, not what I saw, to the other, there was something at the place I left. But it was like this. Now, there, aside from everything I saw with my senses, I was like, there's something that's at least 10 times stronger than what was there. Way stronger. And my head didn't connect with it, but inside I went, that is right. It's the same thing, but it's a ton more. It's the same, but it's multiplied over and over and over again. I didn't understand the other stuff. I didn't know raising hands was in the Bible because we never did that at our church. There was no expression uh, of personal adoration to the Lord during praise and worship. I didn't know that was in the Bible too. I just had only seen what I had seen. So this was all foreign. So I'm just like, whoa. Then I read that story where John's disciples, John really had something. But some of them bailed on John and started following Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had it. And they recognized John's a blessing, but there's a greater blessing here. And so what is this filled with the Spirit? What, what is this? Why, why do we need this? He said, I will build my church. One area of speaking in tongues or being filled with the Spirit which is vitally important, is what we're about to read before we close. 1 Corinthians 14.2. Notice this, 14.2. For he who speaks in a tongue, King James says an unknown tongue, does not speak to man. Everybody say this with me. He who speaks in a tongue, an unknown tongue, does not, does not 
does not speak to man. That's what it said. Does not speak to men. Doesn't. Does not. But to God. Notice this. Let, let your eyes look at that. When a person speaks in tongues, who are they supposed to be speaking to? God. The primary use of being filled with the Spirit is for you to speak. Now, there are manifestations that the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. You see it in some of it in Acts 2, where people had a gift where they spoke forth by inspiration of speaking in tongues, and then there's supposed to be an interpretation. That is totally different than this. This is for speaking to God, not to man. Notice this. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Some translations say divine secrets. To who? To God. Why would you say it to God? Notice he said, notice what he said. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak, or an unknown tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. Boy, if only people could ever read that, the church would be helped. No one understands him. That would mean you either. But he said you need this power, and then they emphasized it. So is there some bridge in between? We've not made some kind of connection. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Look at verse 3 or 4. He who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. Notice you don't speak to men, you speak to God. But what did he say? I will build my church. I will edify my church. He gave the Holy Spirit so people could be personally edified. Personally edified. It's for other things, but it's for personal edification. I've had people say this, because if you come here, you probably won't hear us pray in tongues in a regular Sunday morning service. You might hear somebody, but it's because I believe they maybe are not properly instructed out of the Word of God, and they think, well, this is just how you're supposed to do it. And I'm going to look at some stuff, so don't throw rocks at me yet. I'm a good catch. Might throw it back at you. <laughs> what is this for then? If nobody understands and you're not speaking to men, but you're speaking to God, it's, and he said, then you become built up or edified when you do this. Is it important? Well, it was important enough to slow down the church from doing its great commission. Notice verse 18. This is Paul now speaking about this experience of being filled with the Spirit or being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Those terms are both used. Notice this in verse 18. I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, I've heard people say this who are educated in their own understanding. Well, you know, they needed this back then because they had a lot of people they were going to and didn't know the language. And so they needed this. They, they had to have this to do. But he said you don't speak this to men. He said, you speak this way to God. But Paul said, I thank God. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, as far as we know, probably had the greatest impact on humanity of any man alive, at least written in Scripture. And he said, I thank God I waste my time speaking in tongues more than you all. 
Would he, if he was the most effective person that we know in Scripture in the New Testament, waste his time and find... Why would he do something if he's trying to have a great impact and do something that's such a waste? And he said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, verse 19 is still the Bible. Yet in the church. Yet in the church. So he did this, but he didn't do it in the church. Why didn't he do it in the church? What if I would have got up and started speaking in tongues the whole service? Well, for people who know about it, they'd go, okay. People who didn't would go, okay. Is he going to keep doing this? This dude's crazy. What is this? That's a biblical response. That's a biblical response. We won't read the rest of 19 just yet. Notice this. Verse 16. He's still been speaking, talking about speaking in tongues. He said, well, let's read verse 15. Well, let's just go back to 14. You can go back to Genesis, but I'm not going to go that far back. Notice verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue or an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding or my mind is unfruitful. It doesn't come from there. It's not from your mind. Jesus said out of your belly this would come. Notice he said, what is the conclusion? Then I will pray with the spirit and I will... Also, pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. Notice this phrase. Otherwise, if I bless with the Spirit, or praying in tongues, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen at your giving of thanks? Since he doesn't understand what you say. Why does he not? Because no man understands. Isn't that what the Bible said? So if you do this, people who don't know what you're doing, how can they say amen? And he called it at your giving of thanks, but nobody understands it. It comes from your spirit, not out of your mind, but nobody understands it. But it is a way to personally edify or build yourself up. And he said you give thanks this way is one thing that happens, but nobody will understand it. Why would we not do this in a Sunday morning without an interpretation? Because people won't get edified and they'll think you're crazy. That's the scripture. He said you'll think they're barbarian, mad, and other things. Notice this. Aren't you glad we can just read our Bible? Notice verse 17, for indeed he gives thanks well, but the other is not edified. Because what is this for? Personal building up. What part of you gets built up? Your spiritual part of you. Not your physical, not your mental, but your spiritual part gets built up as you regularly pray this way. And he said, the other doesn't get built up but you do. He said, you give thanks well this way, but the other is not edified. And then Paul makes this statement. Verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. So they were practicing this, and he said, he said, and he was really bringing correction to a church Here's the problem. When you correct this, some people go into the ditch the other side and say, get rid of the whole thing instead of having this in its right place. Notice he said, yet in the church I would rather speak, I'm sorry, verse 18, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. He knew that this is a great way to give thanks. 
He knew this is a way to personally build yourself up. He knew this was a command from the Lord, but he knew the effect it has on an individual. But he said, the way for me to build you up would not be to do this. The way for me to build you up would be for me to teach you plainly through Scripture what the Bible has to say. And then that would build you up. But you could do this at home and also build yourselves up. Jude 20 says this, and I won't turn there. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Well, God wants to build His church. Think of all the investments He's made. He's made this available so he could build the church. Who's the church? We are individually and corporately. Could you build yourself up on your own by praying this way? You better believe it. Would it affect us all if we all came together already built up? I mean, if you lift weights, if you lift them enough and long enough, it'll start to show up. If the only place we ever speak in tongues is here in the church, we have drastically failed. Because you're not going to get that built up if it's only for 15 minutes during praise and worship. But what if you're already built up before you came and then you lift up words in a known tongue so that others can be edified. That's why we don't speak in tongues and have the words in tongues up there. Uh, nobody know what they're saying. But that's why we use right scriptural words so people can be built up that way. There is more than one way that the Lord will build his church, and he wants them all to be you. 